Welcome. So my name is Michael Leibline. Uh, I am the STR program chair this year and uh, have the, uh, the benefit and the honor of uh, moderating this session with our distinguished scholar, Tammy Madsen. Um, what I'm gonna show you is sort of a little bit of background on many of her accomplishments. Uh, and then what we'll do is have uh, roughly a, you know, a, a hopefully what's going to be an ongoing chat with all of you um, we'll have some questions that, uh, that we've asked several people that Tamil will respond to. And then I'll ask, invite you guys to put whatever comments or questions you have in the chat. And I'll hope to involve as many of you as possible. So, uh, since, since I know her, there's very little for me to, to ask or talk about. She doesn't want to hear me. Um, but if you don't know, Tammy is the MKEC Foundation Professor of Strategic Management at Santa Clara. She's the uh, former Associate Dean of the Levy School of Business at Santa Clara. Uh, her PhD is out of uh, UCLA. She's written uh, a volume of uh, academic articles and books in journals such as the SMJ, Organization Science, and, and you can read all the way down that list. Uh, her book uh, with Gordon Walker, Modern Competitive Strategy, uh, I've enjoyed and valued for many years. And uh, I think there's a forthcoming book that I know a little, little, little bit about uh, on co-innovation platforms um, that from what I've seen is fantastic in the sense of lots of different atypical examples. I mean, so I, I've seen so many examples in many cases on Walmart and Southwest and Apple, uh, but this, uh, the co-innovation platform book uh, brings up several other types of examples. Um, her academic research has garnered her uh, many, many awards, um, some of which I value, uh, but the, the Gluick Best Paper Award uh, is, pro is one of the more notable ones. Uh, she has several distinguished papers from uh, BPS and now the STR Division, uh, SMS Best Conference Paper Awards, etc. cetera. Uh, and then one of the things that I highly value uh, is uh, this exemplary service. You know, we have so many people who, Tammy seems to be one of the people who gives back to the community, builds the field, uh, ensures that our field will survive and uh, has done that with service at the Board of Governors level for the Academy of Management, uh, which I think it's really important that we have strategy, strategic management members there, uh, has done the Academy of Management STR leadership uh, rotation that Tim and Samina I see on the call are involved in, uh, as well as I right now, uh, has been uh, very active in the Strategy Research Foundation, uh, in particular, how many years is it now running the dissertation research? She's like, how you've seen like 70, 80 SMS scholars or something, right? Maybe, now. yeah, probably about that many. I think um, and is on the board of advisors uh, for the uh, Global uh, Innovation Institute. So, uh, I mean, I think we're really all in for a treat today to hear her thoughts about what she has done. So uh, please join me in a little, uh, you know, virtual clap for welcoming Tammy Madsen. <laughs> Uh, for our little interview, and I will stop sharing these slides. Thank you. Um, so welcome. So uh, what we're going to try to do today is have a mostly chat. I, I want to, I hope this is very conversational. It's just more my style than anything. Um, but um, what I hope we have is a nice little chat uh, with Tammy. Um, uh, we have some questions for her that I will jump into and then, uh, you know, open up the chat. And I see Tim is already uh, uh, entering in some chat comments here, and we'll have some Q&A uh, as we go on. So, so Tammy, um, 
as you think or reflect back on on your career, what led what led you to jump into uh, an academic career and an interest in strategic management? Um, I think you know I worked uh, prior to the the PhD, and I happened to work for two what what I kind of think about as two somewhat dysfunctional companies. <laughs> Both, uh, one, the first one was, so I was a mechanical engineer and my first job out was for a defense contractor um, doing the test evaluation for the F-14 uh, aircraft. And uh, it was a very small company. It was very sort of, I'd say, sort of inbred, if you will, um, not particularly well organized. Uh, and uh, I, I learned a lot about government contracting and sort of the, the ups and downs of that process. But my job was really to ensure that I designed tests to ensure that the missile tracked its target. And after a little bit of time, I realized it's not really the kind of space I wanted to work in. Um, and there was a lot of software ver verification validation. So I was not only doing the testing, but at that time, looking at ones and zeros, streams of paper. And that was, it was just really tedious. So I moved to, um, to a division of, Gel of General Motors, Delco Electronics. They had a unit in Santa Barbara, and I began packaging design kind of the black boxes for cars, you know, all our electronic controllers that go in the vehicles. And, and it was really sort of an interesting job. I did circuit board design and, and box design, um, but we would get tossed projects that could not be turned around fast enough in Kokomo, which was the headquarters location for Delco Electronics. Um, and one of those projects was something for Cadillac. It was a real-time damping system that we designed. Now, why am why, why I telling you this story? Well, there's a little bit of background here. Uh, this the, the reason why, this was a brand new functionality need for the car. The reason why is they designed a, a new engine, which they were all excited about and were really you know, like, ah, oh, this is going to be the best engine going forward. Um, but they were trying to put this in a, a smaller Cadillac vehicle, something called the Elante, which was a, around the 92, 91 timeframe. It was a slightly smaller car. And when we put the engine in there, it torqued the car. The car pitched forward, it squatted, the driver felt all of this aggressive move. So they decided they needed a system to fix that problem and figure out how to dampen that motion for um, the driver. So we came in and sort of tried to start to create this, this, this project and this controller. Um, and at that time I was getting my master's in management. And then I, so I worked on that project and a couple others. And then I went into project management and program management. Um, and in that role, I had an opportunity to go to a lot of different divisions within GM. Um, it was great exposure for a young team of engineers, um, but it was also, you know, sort of this exposure of saying, well, there's got to be a better way to run a company. What else, what else do we need? What else can we do? It was very inert. It was very, um, there was a lot of nepotism. Uh, people that had problems in one division would get promoted up to another division. So uh, all kinds of issues that arose. It, we had to release a chip for this controller and it took hundred signatures to get that chip released. So it wasn't surprised that it took four years just to release semi new model of a vehicle. Um, and so I, at that time I started thinking about well, where can I read? What, what should I be reading to sort of sort out what to do? And I started reading, you know, HBS and a variety of, of articles and, and, and books on strategy, but not systematically. And, um, and so I decided to apply to UCLA and I was really fortunate to get accepted into the, the strategy and OT group at the time. That's, that was the group. So we had strategy folks like Marvin Lieberman and then OT scholars like Bill McKelvey. So that's sort of a little bit of the background. And, and my focus, really, I wanted to study change, strategic change um, and uh, strategic dynamics is when I, when I finished up with that work. Yeah. Huh. I wish I knew, I mean, my, I remember in engineering, so just a, a geeky, geeking out, my, my, one of my projects in class was uh, building a, what I used to call a Jetsons mobile on the control system to track a laser beam tracking a, 
little Jetson flying uh, mobile, and uh, I would have benefited from knowing you earlier and how to design that kind of control system. Um, My senior design project in, in college in mechanical engineering was um, a hovercraft. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, well, we well, all the engineers get together and sit back and say, uh, <laughs> you know, what I hear from my students is, um, my engineering students is, I don't know, you know, why do all my good ideas get, uh, you know, uh, killed by the management team or shelved? And, uh, you know, now, you know, these are some of the things I think that motivate a lot of us to, to get into this space. And um, I hope, um, and that's a big hope, that uh, academic uh, uh, business programs are more uh, functional than what you described. Well, so that's the thing. When I, when I started out, you know, GM was a very bureaucratic organization. I thought, ah, I'm going into academia. <laughs> what is that? And, you know, um, yeah, I was wrong. So. Yeah. Was, it, was there anything? So this was, it was just this, 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 this unease with the bureaucracy that led you into the doctoral program. Did that, did that feed over to the dissertation or? You know, I, um, I was, uh, well, I think the focus being on strategic change, how agile can you be? How, you know, how rigid can you be? So um, when I, when I, when I first started the doctor program, Bill McKelly was one of the first people I met. And, you know, Bill's background had been in, in OT, but also sort of organizational evolution. He wasn't, was less about the pop, pop ecology, but more about the evolutionary ecology behind how a company evolves and grows. And, um, and so when we, that very first meeting before the program even started, there was clearly an intersection where we're like, ah. And so he started pushing me or sending me content on organizational evolution. I started taking a deeper dive into that literature as a way to think about how do organizations change. And um, so in one of his first seminars, we read, you know, all the OT classics, but then work on Popper. And it seemed to me Popper, popular, I'm sorry, philosophy of science, so Popper and Kuhn, um, Weick's work on enactment, variation, selection, retention models, but also that model comes up again in the knowledge creation literature and psychology, as well as in, you know, Nelson and Winter's work and in some of the sociology work. And I read all of Winter's early papers. And so his, his inertial seminar kind of really set the stage for, this breadth of reading from different areas that would inform how to think about change within organizations. And, and the dissertation was really focused on how does variation selection retention operate inside organizations to create a capability that enables them to change under particular conditions. Um, so we did, we had, you know, certainly work from um, organizational evolution, the pop ecology work was expanding at that time. There was a huge amount of empirical work in the 80s and 90s in the pop ecology space and in ASQ in particular. Um, but there was also the learning literature. So Eric Dar joined the group when I was at UCLA. And so we had the benefit of exposure to a whole seminar from him and that linked into this, you know, so some of Miner's work, if you will, and Miner's work. Um, and uh, Joel Baum's work coming out at that time. So there was all this, this, this intersection and then Working with Bill, I was also doing some reading in evolutionary ecology and biology and then some genetics as a way to try to sort out what are the roots of some of these ideas and not just kind of cherry picking, oh, here's a frame from biology and let's just drop it into um, or evolutionary ecology and let's drop it into a strategy article. So, so it was really sort of this challenge of trying to knit together these different pieces of ideas or I'd say crazy of myself thinking that I could knit together these different ideas. Um, and the first two papers really sort of focused on trying to do that empirically, um, operationalized VSR empirically. Now, the challenge, of course, was with those two project, projects was that I would receive a reviewer that was somebody that was maybe organizational evolution, 
somebody that was a learning scholar and a pop ecologist, and they never agreed, <laughs> right? So it was really a battle. I mean, my first paper was, um, I was really lucky with one reviewer, which there was one line which said publish as is, and I'm sure I'll never see that kind of review again. But the second reviewer was your classic reviewer too, who was just, you know, not happy. And um, because of the first reviewer, the editor gave us an opportunity to rebut that second reviewer. And we did so, but I think we used his or her arguments to support our arguments against theirs. And so um, it didn't it didn't go over well. <laughs> that took, just that process itself though, took four and a half years at SMJ. So I would say one of the great things about the field today is that the journals have improved in terms of that timeline. So nothing sits really at SMJ for 16 months now before you know you hear something back. Um, so that's the good news. But but that was, you know, one lesson from that was uh, this integration is useful, but you really have to be careful about the framing at the front end of the paper sort of to ensure that you're actually locking in reviewers that are in the general space, you know, that that you're heading into. Um, the third paper, the third paper from this stream was was or was intended to be a paper on capability hierarchy. So this was the mid 90s and, you know, the work had come out. Tisa Paisano and Schuen's working paper had come out, Henderson's work on architectural innovation, and certainly we're all building on Nelson Winter and, and Barney's work, but the capability literature was starting to evolve at that time. And um, so that was my plan for, for that piece. Um, but about two and a half, three weeks before my defense, uh, Bill called and said, ah, no, I'd rather have another empirical paper for that third piece. So, and I, I had already taken the job at SMU, I was at SMU, um, it was November and I was determined to defend. And so it just was a really busy three weeks <laughs> um, and got that done and sent it out. So, uh, but that's kind of what, that's how it evolved. So it went from that. And I think that lesson of those first two papers really sort of influenced some of the subsequent directions I took in my, in my work. Um, but that's sort of how the dissertation came about. I'm curious. I mean, I do, again, I, I'd love to get everybody encouraged to, I encourage everybody to enter questions into the chat. And it, and what resonates with this conversation to me is what uh, the PhD programs were like in the, you know, the mid nineties, late nineties, you mentioned a lot of the, the fundamental work on, you know, reading fundamentals in the philosophy of science. Uh, that's something I know at our PhD program, we debate how much uh, how do we give, how, how much formal instruction do we offer on philosophy of science? How much mm -hmm. formal uh, instruction do we offer on methods? How do we weigh contributions to the field, to the disciplines, to the methods? Uh, so, I mean, I'm curious, and again, just something, if you're in the, if you're in the background here and thinking about a question, um, you know, thinking about reflecting on how the field has evolved uh, and what it was like then versus now, uh, I think would be a, you know, sort of interesting maybe stimulus for a chat question. Yeah, and UCLA was a place where, you know, you were- Yeah, please tell us, UCLA out. is infamous in the mid nineties, okay? So- you have, uh, to, you have to carve out your space. And so um, it wasn't, you know, it, there wasn't a lockstep system in place, right? So you, 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 I mean, there was an expectation second year you did a paper and then the third year you basically did your comps and your qualifying exams. And, and then the next two years were your dissertation work. And then there was always this like, well, maybe you should stay for one more year. <laughs> like, no, it needs to be done, right? So, um, but you really had to figure out what your space was and carve that out. And um, but the other beauty was that there was, we had a massive number of doctoral seminars, right? So whether they were in sociology or economics, but also many that, I remember, I think I sat through three with Rumelts, um, one or two with Marvin, um, certainly with Bill, 
but also Barbara Lawrence, for instance, had a great seminar, which was at the intersection of um, empirics and theory. So how do you link those two together? How do you bridge the, the empirical design and the operational the, and the theoretical design? And that, I remember, I think that seminar had about 25 doctoral students and it was so well, uh, well received. So I think this, each of these, not only expanded our breadth, but also encouraged us to go deep into a particular area. So you wrote a field statement prior to um, being able to schedule your qualifying exams, and that field statement carved out your territory. And if it wasn't sufficiently deep and didn't sort of attend to the breadth that was necessary, you're, you wouldn't get through that hurdle, right? Um, and the qualifying exams were four-day take-home take exam. Um, and I remember handing mine to Bill you know, very nervously sort of giving him the hard copy and him like, oh, that's about the right weight. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's about right. Um, and then worrying about, you know, the defense a week later of that. So, uh, yeah, so it was a very interesting place. Um, and lots, you know, the cohort before me include Anne-Marie Knott and David Hoops and Don Hatfield was ahead of that. Uh, Russ Koff was over in um, the HR group, AOB uh -huh. group. Um, so I didn't interact with him as much during that time, but there was a lot of interaction between folks that were in his, the cohorts uh, behind him. Uh, so it was, there was a large group of doctoral students at the time. So it was, it was a really great environment. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I know, you, you know, you've done a lot of work. Your competitive heterogeneity special issue is, I mean, incredibly cited. But just I'm hearing you talk about the T. spasano Schuin article, some of the other, you know, the Henderson and Clark article, some of these now famous articles that were floating around for a decade before they were published um, in, in some instances. And that was sort of the environment I think, you know, you were very, you were very much a part of. Uh, and some of us were a part of it at that time. So uh, I, I remember so we, I, Rebecca coming and giving a talk and, and you know, and you know, the room was full and there was one, we had a visiting faculty member that was just going on about, kept on asking her questions about something that um, I think that the most the audience wasn't interested in. And I think Ramel or Ochi shut, shut that person down. It was like, could you just stop? I want to hear Rebecca talk. So we also were known for having very um, aggressive seminars, I'd say. It was quite a learning experience as a, when I remember starting out first year thinking, we invited this person, what, <laughs> what's going on, right? So, so yeah, it was a good learning environment. Yeah, this is yeah, I, a, an exciting time for all of us. And I think it, out in the West Coast and UCLA at the time was uh, amazing. Um, when you think about, you know, the narrow, you even were talking, I think about how the dissertation evolved. And I don't know how many doctoral students are on this call. I know we've had several on prior calls but sort of how the qualifying process uh, evolved, how your interaction with Bill McKelvey, another giant. I mean, you, you had seminars and after the formal seminars, other seminars with these, uh, these giants of the time that were in that area and then coming through that area, but you were writing documents and then that was sort of narrowing the question. Is that? Yeah, so, you know, so, uh... <clears throat> You start out with, so this field statement, for instance, and maybe that's what you're pointing to, is that you'd, you'd start out with sort of a general question of territory, that, but you'd, you know, you'd spend a couple of years there already kind of trying to, you're starting at the beginning of the funnel, like your first year perhaps, and then ta tailoring it down. And so using the readings from the seminars, but also these sort of, um, a couple of us would band together and, and read and then have the conversations about literature that wasn't in the seminar, but we certainly knew was relevant to our stream of work. Um, and, and so, carving out what are the questions, the relevant questions, what are the relevant domains, and what are some potential hypotheses. Um, so setting it up from that standpoint. So it really, it's, it was a precursor to the dissertation, right? So almost a dissertation proposal in itself. Um, but, but they wanted to understand, do we understand kind of the lay of the land? Do we under, are we, 
have we read deeply enough to understand what's the conversation that's going on in that space? And, or at least, you know, getting deep enough to sort of understand parts of that conversation and to be able to expand on it going forward. So, um, so that was, you know, that's just a lot of, that's just time reading what, you know, the beauty of the doctoral program is all this time to, to create, to, to spend getting that depth of knowledge. And, um, and, and that's, I never, you know, as a, as an undergrad, I never thought one, I'd be getting a PhD, but two, that I would be reading in evolutionary ecology perhaps. Right. Uh, but it was, it was the right connections of pieces and with Bill's guidance, it helped sort of to push me in certain directions that, that, um, really helped my interest. I was, you know, a GM when I was I started running, managing programs or as a program manager, started run, managing a number of different practice projects. I was just getting bored, right? I, I felt like it was very easy. So from coming from mechanical engineering, when I started taking management classes, I was like, what, what this, I could have done this as an undergrad. This, this, this is what we do really. And maybe it just clicked with me. Maybe it was a topic that just resonated with me more, but you know, the engineering part was, was really tough. And, um, and, and this part was like, wow, I would have had a lot more time at the beach as an undergrad if I had gone into <laughs> business management. So uh, probably, probably better not to have done that. Yeah. I'm laughing because that, uh, well, I did not have the benefit of going to uh, school on the West Coast and have those beaches. But um, yes, I do remember having that same uh, sort of reaction about, uh, and, and then the aha about what is it that's unique about what we're doing in management that changes from the engineering mindset. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I, so I, I see a couple of questions from Nicholas. I'm gonna to come to him in a little bit. Those are fantastic. I, I, I think with what I know about Tammy uh, and what I know about me, I, I'm looking forward to that conversation. Um, but maybe just talk a little bit more formally for us, for everyone first. Um, you know, how do you think, you know, you've had a, a successful career. We've got a bunch of PhD students and young scholars on the call who are trying to understand what it is about the career and how do I manage myself to have a career such as yours? So, you know, would you talk a little bit about after the dissertation, how your research interests evolved, how you decided what projects to take on and what you know, how did you trim? There's only so much time that you know you can work. Um, how do you how do you trim projects that are maybe less uh, less likely to help you do what you want to do? Um, just just comment on how how your selection process uh, evolved. So you know my first job was at SMU uh, with Gordon Walker, and that was sort of a gift. I'd met Gordon at um, a conference the year I was on the market, and he was very gracious to say, "Oh, would you come and give a talk?" and and um, and we had common common research interests. Um, I was getting a lot of pushback on the, the two first two papers from the dissertation because of the challenges I spoke about. But I also was very much interested in um, the literature on uh, variance components and the persistence literature because I, I was interested in understanding what explains differences in performance and then also what explains why it endures. And so. And that endurance part of that persistence part comes from my interest in the evolutionary story of organizations. What are the evolutionary factors that explain development organizations and their performance? Um, so my so we shifted really quickly, or I shifted pretty quickly to looking at uh, this other stream of work um, and and building out of that work. Um, so and what I felt were a bit more core questions. So I was really at the intersection of OT and strategy before, and then shifted more towards these persistence and invariance comps types of questions. Um, and, and I think in terms of selecting projects, um, you know, I think one 
aspect that I haven't always been good at, I was better at in the first, I'd say, 10 years, but got distracted a little bit later is, you know, sort of avoiding shiny pebbles. There's a lot of shiny pebbles out there. There's a lot of things that might attract your attention. So I haven't always been good at that. But one piece that sticks with me, with me from, from lessons from Bill is um, he had this idea that are you adding, when you're creating a paper, are you adding mortar to a brick on a wall, right? You're just doing something kind of incrementally, or are you trying to build a new wall? And, um, and so the intent would be that we're starting out with ideas of, of tackling an important question um, in an area that is gonna lead to a new wall, that's gonna lead to sort of some new line of inquiry or, or sort of, that's the idea, that's the starting point. Um, and so that sort of resonates me, with me when I'm thinking about projects. And of course, we always start out with that notion and you might end up building you know, a closet <laughs> or just part of a wall. Um, and, reviewers can beat it down so it becomes a sort of incremental thing but but trying to start out with thinking about what's why do I really get excited about this project what's what's really the meat the, the meaty part of it uh what will make me stay with it um is it branching out into is there more than at least two papers three papers from that from that area I have a six course teaching mode so um and I've been doing that you know since since I've been at Santa Clara so uh, I tend to have fewer projects um and so I'm trying to aim high um some of them don't quite make it there, uh, but but that's the goal. Uh, I have a second set of projects that are more phenomenon driven. And um, over time, whether it's alums coming to us and saying, hey, are you interested in engaging in this project? Or, you know, I'm, I'm collaborating with a colleague from SAP on the Co-Innovation Platforms book. Um, those opportunities are, there, there's a lot of those that come to us within uh, at the, at the business schools in, in the, we're in the Valley. Uh, so it's a matter of trying to pick and choose what might be, what, what might lend to a, a true sort of rigorous project, right? Is there the data that's available there? Um, can we carve something out? And so uh, in the er very early 2000s, uh, a couple of alums came and said, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to sort out this idea of crowdsourcing for innovation. Um, do you want to join us? And we end up spending a lot of time talking to about 50 different companies in the Valley that were trying to sort out how to use crowdsourcing for innovation. Um, but we were a little early in getting that work to, in, in sending that work to the journals because it got a lot of pushback about like, what are you talking about? And did you really talk to these people at HP and Intel and Cisco? And so, um, so that ends up being sort of, that, so we, we end up sending that to a, 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 as a book chapter because it was just getting beaten down too much. But I developed a course from that. Right, which I taught for a few years. And, um, and so I got really, it allowed me to get deep into this topic and be more familiar with it and then sort of triggered my interest in some other innovation topics coming from there. So I, I think it's a matter of partially some of these projects that might not pan out, figuring out ways that they can still be fruitful contributions to your teaching or your research portfolio. Right. Yeah, that's that. awesome. Um, I think other things are that I enjoy collaborating, right? So if you look at my CV, it's, it's I mostly, I've co-authored almost everything. And so I really enjoy that process of sense-making and, and talking through the ideas with someone. So I think it really sort of advances um, my understanding of what we're trying to accomplish. And so that's, that's my big tip of advice for doctoral students is focus. Just try to maintain your focus as much as possible and, and be very selective. Um, and, and I'm now trying to do a little bit more of that, be more selective and, and focused, get back to where I was, you know, when I started out. So focus initially, because Bill was there with a hammer, well, I'm a trowel, you know, uh, and then uh, and then maybe, you know, opening up a little bit and then uh, coming back to the field a little bit. Are there, I, I, the, the capability idea and the distinctions between persistence and whatnot seems sort of 
super interesting to me. But what 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 ideas are you most proud of, or what from that early research of yours? What what would you hope that most people on the call are aware of or thinking about? Um, well, I think I'm I think I'm most proud of the the, the Gluick paper, right? So that in, in the work on persistence, and because it's something that I'm I'm sort of a bit more passionate about. So that uh, the competitive heterogeneity cohorts and persistence paper, where we try to sort of look at um, after a shock, if you create a superior advantage, how long is it going to hold, right? And so you and I have some work in that space in the innovation context where the DV is more innovation advantage. But um, we think about incumbents as being less agile than entrants. And in fact, the papers that I have in this space that are about entrants versus incumbents and the heterogeneity pre and post shock tend to show the opposite, that incumbents tend to be more adaptive. They're, they're able to sustain their advantage a particular, incumbents of particular size, I would say, uh, longer than those of entrance of a comparable size. And so that was a little bit of a surprise. Uh, but that paper also too, when I, you know, 2003 was the Gluick Award and Michael Lubotkin at the time said, oh, Tammy, these kinds of papers are like, and like being on the cover of Sports Illustrated, they tend to kill off the paper. And it took a while to get it into SMJ. So, uh, but when we finally got a version that was, uh, I think, linking to the cohorts and the competitive heterogeneity piece a bit more, um, it, it went faster than sort of earlier versions, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, there is this sort of challenge. I remember somebody, you know, early on talking to me about, you know, I want to hire you if you help me think differently about an important problem and how much we've transitioned in some sense to, you know, how many, uh, for lack of a better term, AMJs have you published? Um, but, uh, there has been some transition in the field. And I, I will try to find, I have your paper, the uh, the SMJ. We'll try to put it in the chat for everybody. Um, if I, if I so, can. I mean, I, I think one piece about this work on persistence and the variance co components, you know, the, the, the classic work uses, you know, all the CompuSouth data, for instance, right? Um, and as a result of that, they're not able to control for industry, specific industry events. So major shocks that might change the likelihood or the reset in industry's clock. And so at any point in time, they're sampling industries that are all at different stages in their life cycles. And we would expect performance to be different among firms in those different stages. And so that gets a little bit washed away in the larger studies. The larger studies provide a lot of insight and a lot of sort of helpful um, results. And then we sort of narrowed down and said, well, look, if we took, a, took one industry and said, if there's a major shock, what are the dynamics that occur pre and post? And so both from a persistence standpoint, but also from um, on the variance comp side. So that was the first SMJ paper was with Gordon in the airlines. But looking just simply just added one variable to the mix, really, with sort of a shock and then whether a firm was an entrant or incumbent, and started to see the differences in explaining the um, performance differences among firms. So beautiful. And thank you, Asim. Asim just put that in the chat for everybody. Thank that, you, Asim. That allows me to, to focus on other things. Like, like Nicholas's question to you. So I, I'm gonna sort of jump out. We had talked a little bit about this yesterday, uh, about major issues you know, facing the field. But Nicholas, you had a and I, and I lost, yeah, there you are, you're still here with us. You have a couple of questions on uh, Tammy's paper with uh, Rudy Durand and Rob Grant uh, and uh, comments on evolutionary theory. How about I just let you jump in and ask what you're, what's really on your mind uh, while we take some other comments from the group. Sure, thanks. I'm really interested in this distinction between fragmentation and integration that you talked about in the field. Especially given your comments, the analogy of building foundations versus mortar, I've never heard that. I like that a lot. And I'm wondering if it, Jerry Davis talks about this mystery house that we've built <laughs> and uh, 
this wall analogy reminds me of a property that has a bunch of new wall foundations, but no walls. <laughs> so yeah. I just, yeah. I'm curious how you're thinking about this integration fragmentation idea now. Um, so we have, you know, Rudy Brent and, and uh, Rob and I have a lot of conversations about this during the process, right? So, um, and, uh, you know, in, in, in working on that special issue, part of, part of our reading and in, in, in developing the intro was going out and seeing sort of, you know, there's a bunch of other journals, other fields, what's going on in those. And almost every field <clears throat> has stories about fragmentation, right? And the oldest fields even sort of have stories about fragmentation. So I think there's uh, I don't know if it's, I'm trying to remember if it was JEP, but there's an editorial by new editors coming in and almost everyone has a story about how the field's getting fragmented and how do we manage this problem. And so I think there's this massive tension, right? So fragmentation, we don't, do we want to close the boundaries and then become sort of too, too focused on the same thing and then we're sort of just whittling away at one tiny problem or how do we manage that expansion in a way that we're still we still can recognize that the field is strategy and that research is strategy, right? So, um, so I have one question about, and maybe this is something just for, for everyone, everyone, if, if you put this in the chat, what do you think is distinctive about strategy, about the strategic management field? What makes it distinctive as strategic management? If, you, if anybody has ideas, go ahead and, and put those in the chat. So, um, so I think that it's, it's helpful to, I think, two things. One, I talked about reading deeply and reading broadly. And so I think that integration is really critical. Um, and the question is then how do we frame that integration so we're still talking about strategy in the direction of the field versus we're now, no, we're now in another dialogue. We're, we're, not, we're now talking about organizational behavior and we're more aligned with that, that, that area. Um, I think the second piece is sort of thinking about it's not so much that do we just explain things just using the strategy literature? I don't think that's as helpful. I think that we, we need to think about, okay, if we're adopting a lens from an alternative discipline, why are we adopting that lens? What's the point? Is it really useful? Is it necessary? Is it going to help us better understand the core questions in our field? Right? So that kind of integration is important. If we're just adopting that lens to sort of just layer on something new, that's less helpful for advancing our understanding of strategic management. But if, if there's other sort of ways to think about our core questions and answering those core questions, then how do we tap into those theoretical streams and how do we manage that integration and combination? So I think most of the papers we see today are more integrative, right? They're pulling from a variety of different voices, uh, different theories and figuring out ways to knit those together. Um, sometimes that's, that's more challenging. The fragmentation piece comes in, I think, from, from a, a variety of sources, right? So we have, could be, we have core work, we have peripheral work, there's a whole bunch of stuff in between. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure about the boundaries question. I think we have this fuzzy boundary. Uh, it was just on a call the other, on the Bacconi seminar the other day where Anita and, and, and Paul Adler were talking a little bit about this, but Anita, you know, her point is we should change the DV or expand the DV in strategy to think more broadly about what are the influences here that were that were interest. And so we've seen more work on you know stakeholders, more seen more work on CSR. Um, but what I'd like to, to think about is how does that work link up to the core questions? Right? So if it's, it's completely independent from the core questions, is it do we still think about it as being strategy work? And so that I think is the challenge. And so I, you know, if I see a paper in, that that's come to me 
from SMJ and it's a review piece, but it has no link at all to strategy. I'm wondering why am I reviewing it, right? It might be a paper on CSR, that's fine, but if they haven't even, if they're not in the conversation that's going on within the strategy field, right, about CSR, then, then why, why is it being sent to SMJ? So I think, you know, it's, it's good to sort of think about doing work that's expanding the field, but I think you still have to think about what's the connection back to strategy and are you in the conversation of strategy? Are you in that dialogue? Are you creating a dialogue around that space? Does that make, does it make sense? Right. Sort of a long-winded answer, sorry about that. <laughs> I think we got to most of what Nicholas was asking about and, and chat back to us. Uh, you know, I think you had, you had another follow-on question a little bit that maybe we could come to as well on, uh, on, on some of your thoughts on evolutionary theory and how the selection effects uh, that from evolutionary theory you think might be affecting current knowledge production processes. I think that's what I'm reading from Nicholas's question. I guess I'd tie that, I mean, yesterday when we were talking about, so we, we were having this uh, informal chat about, well, what would be fun? You know, and what are the big, what are the big unanswered questions that, you know, you'd like to see today? So there's Nicholas's big question about selection effects, but, you know, ultimately, does that tell us something about the kinds of research questions that in your mind would benefit the field the greatest today? That's kind of a big question. Um, well, so I mean, I, what, what should we ask today? Um, the, the, the question on, on the selection effects of our current production practices affect the field is, is, is a really interesting one, right? So I think all of us have been in spaces where we've submitted a paper and maybe it's a new space for us. And then there's a little clan there that's like, no, you you're you, you weren't part of this conversation before so we're not going to let you in kind of thing so I think there are areas that where there are some constraints and pushback in terms of um, advancing knowledge what I find is if something is incredibly novel it oftentimes will get challenged more right so I think that's a selection effect and the question is who's doing the selecting right is and so, and there's different levels, right? So we have, we can, you know, our, our own selection of a project, then, you know, that project getting vetted by the reviewer. So there's another hand of selection. And then beyond that, then there's impact and influence. And sort of how does that paper then, how does it get used downstream? How does it influence the field's direction downstream? So there's another selection mechanism that occurs downstream. So, so I think it's, you know, these interactions across these three that influence um, that, the, the selection process itself. It's not any, it's not just one piece that's coming. It's not just the reviewers, for instance, that are sort of creating that problem. It's the editors as well um, participating, but then also the audience, the readers downstream, how they're using it and how they're pushing it forward. Um, so I don't know if that sort of answers your question. Uh, so to Michael's question about what questions are of interest in the field, what, what direction is that, is that what you're asking, Michael? What, what are yeah, we thinking? You know, I, was, I was giving you an opportunity to say, where would you like to see, what would, what would, you, what would excite you if a junior faculty member you know, was publishing research? You go, that's somebody I want to follow. That's, that's the kind of research agenda that I find interesting. Well, I think there's a lot of them and I see some of them on the call right now, right? Yeah. So um, uh, I, you know, I, I think it goes back to this notion of what type of work do you want to accomplish? Right, so I'm not so much a fan of, let me just add one more variable to my dissertation advisor's work, right? And I think we don't, most of us don't strive to do that. We, we wanna sort of do something else. And so, um, so I think it's really starting out with, you know, that 
to me, because of my training at UCLA, is what is truly your interest? Rather than someone saying, here's the core questions that you should now go after. It's about what is truly your interest? How does it, how does it contribute to that area of core questions, right? Because if you're not passionate about what you're looking at, or you're not sort of truly engaged in it and, and committed to it, then it, you know, it's not going to go anywhere, or it's going to be really hard for you to get that work out. You're going to sort of be unhappy most of the time. So, so I think it's more important to identify something that really resonates with you, with your interest, as opposed to sort of hopping on a trend, right? So I remember in my doctor program, there was at early stages, there were a couple other colleagues that were like, oh, there's a trend on networks, and there's this, and there's that. And I was like, what? That wasn't helpful to me. It just seemed sort of kind of distracting. So I, I, for me, it was really more about what's your true interest. And then does that align with how do, how do we link that into the area that the domain that I'm studying? Um, what's the connection back? Yeah, I'm, I'm envisioning a Venn diagram of this is who I am. This is what the field is. And can there be some overlap? And there, there in my language, not, I won't put this on you. You know, there's got to be something. If we don't know what's distinctive about the field, Let's shut the field down, but that's a whole other uh, conversation. Samina, thank you, has some, Samina's coming back to her take on strategy. We will come to that as well as anybody else who's willing to uh, share their uh, responses to Tammy's question uh, a little later in the call. Uh, Asim keeps uh, putting out links to papers. He also mentioned a paper that he has with uh, Cincy. We should see the link to the Asim call paper in the chat, but... Um, that's, a, that's another uh, question. What, what I might do is uh, I'm gonna go a little off script as well. Abhi uh, has a question here for you uh, on research and teaching. And you had mentioned a little bit about this with, you know, it's, you're in this super uh, interesting dynamic uh, uh, context within the Bay Area. And I know your book is sort of interacting practice teaching and research, but Abhi, maybe you wanna, would you uh, jump in and sort of share your, your, your question about thoughts, tips for integrating research and teaching? Sure. Uh, I think you just read out my question, but I'm going to just restate it. Uh, I was curious about how uh, you've gone about integrating research with teaching, if you have any tips about that, and what are your favorite classes to teach? <clears throat> Thank you, Avi. I appreciate the, the question. And I, uh, so I teach largely core strategy. That's mostly what I've been doing. I've recently started teaching, and oftentimes I'll have a one-off, you know, one unit sh short course on a topical area. Uh, so I now have a course on um, uh, challenges in strategic change and strategic leadership. Um, but I think over time I've become better at, at linking in my research in, and bringing it into the classroom and, and, and looking at that, using the research of others to bring it into the classroom. So, uh, so Stepping back, you know, we always think about, oh, here's all the things I, I think they need to know. This is all the stuff I want to accomplish in this class. And typically there's too much, right? So getting better about picking and choosing what are the most critical pieces here that I want to make sure are conveyed in this session. And then the, the third, the next piece would be sort of how can I draw from some of the existing literature to, to show, to bring in that, that, that work and show how it's influencing how we think about this topic. Um, I'd say that for Gordon and I in the book, everything is, you know, the book draws on empirical work, right? So sometimes I think he's contacted by a scholar saying, well, you didn't cite my paper. And he's like, well, that's a theory paper. We don't have any necessarily results from that paper yet. So that's kind of what I do in the classroom as well. I'll, I'll focus on the empirical work. So I might start off with, here's a result 
here's a finding on alliances. You know, what do you think about that? And then we'll dive into the alliance literature um, and I'll, you know, I'll make sure that I'm citing or pulling from interesting examples that come from some of the empirical work. Um, when, uh, for some, some topics, it just, it's just easier, right? So when I think about the persistence literature, so sessions on temporary advantage, in, in my, my course or about that. When I think about the competitive hair J literature, it's all about value minus cost. And that is present in every single kind of session. It sort of is pervasive throughout the content that I have in my strategy course. And so those are two pieces that come straight from work that I'm connected to, but also the work of others. Um, then, you know, I have, you know, lessons from others, watching others talk. So, so when I was at UCLA, I, I was a TA for George Yip, who was amazing in the classroom. Um, I also sat through some of Dick Rimmelt's classes to sort of gain an insight from him. So if you're at a place where you have these kind of rock star instructors that are, uh, that are, are really good scholars, see if you can sit in their class, see what they do. How do they tackle a case? What are some things that they do? How do they wrap up a class session? What do they do at the front end of the course? What do they do at the back end of the course? I sat in on all of Gordon's classes or one of Gordon's uh, strategy courses when I was at SMU also to get a flavor of how he taught. And it's not that we can, you don't want to mimic someone. We all have our own characteristics, but you sometimes can pick up tips or different ways to think about, oh, that's a way I can convey an idea that I hadn't thought about. Um, and I think it's helpful as a doctoral student as well, as well as an assistant professor, because, you know, you're so focused on trying to get the research done that it's really difficult to have this time to step back and reflect on, oh, how could I do this teaching differently, right? You're just trying to kind of get the teaching done and then get back to your work. So, so some of these uh, opportunities to sort of watch others do that can trigger ideas for you that might make that process more streamlined. Um, I also then, I'm, I'm fortunate to be in a space where we have a lot of guest speakers. And so, uh, and they're always willing to come in and talk and the Zoom environment's made that much, much easier. So, so right now, for instance, a number of my alums are all working in M&A and I have them come in and I'm gonna have them come in and do a, a session on M&A for my executive MBAs in the fall. Another group of alums are now all involved in the cloud, right? So a couple senior executives in running cloud ops uh, at a couple different and DevOps at a couple different uh, companies in the Valley. So they'll come in and do a session on, well, how do you think about a strategy around the cloud itself? Um, so those are two ways that I sort of try to bring those ideas in into the classroom. Um, I think that the simplest way though is to start out small and then sort of build up. And, but you know, like in my RBV class, I, I you know I had pictures of Barney and, and Margie and you know, well, who are we talking about here? Here's the people that came came up with this. And I have a couple other pictures of people. So it's also a way to connect the students back. Oh, okay, oh, okay now I see that or, or show a video of one of those folks. Right. So things like that can help. Yeah, I hear a lot. I mean, there is some idiosyncratic, you know, you were fortunate enough to be around uh, Marvin Lieberman, Barbara Lawrence, Dick Rimmelt, uh, Bill McKebley, uh, Gordon Walker. But I think, you know, hopefully with the Zoom environment and the academy sessions, you know, all of us can enjoy. You know, it's not just context specific. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, great opportunities there, uh, hopefully. So. One thing, jumping around, I guess we've talked a lot about research, a lot about teaching. We're still going to come back to this question about what everybody thinks is distinctive, which we have now Samina and Shawa Lu commenting on. But, you know, Tim Fulta, I'm waiting to hear what you say. Um, <laughs> but if, if we think about, uh, we've thought, talked about research, teaching, you know, what, one of the things I find just, just terribly admirable about what you've accomplished is all your you know, exemplary contributions at the college level, 
at the division level for the strategy field, at the you know the academic society level now with the the board of governors uh, work. How, how do you reflect that? You know, would you share thoughts on those roles? I mean, I know some people say, "Hey, I'm, I mean, that's not part of my summer compensation scheme, and I'm only doing what I'm incentivized to do." Uh, you've invested a lot in the field. Um, you know, how do you think through that, and 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 how and and, and how might we uh, encourage more folks to contribute in that in that in that similar fashion? So I think two things. One is kind of um, this notion of leaving the beach or the campground better than you found it, right? So that that someone helped me along the way, it's it's pretty easy to help someone else. And so thinking about it from that perspective. And so I think the way that I approach service is not about what can I get from it? What's it gonna do for me? Um, but about the community or how I wanna contribute or, or what I want to uh, try to try to contribute or accomplish with, with this service commitment. Um, so I did not necessarily look for these things strategically. I wasn't thinking carefully about, oh, should I do that or not? Um, but, uh, I will think about if I am tasked with something, then how can I make a difference with that particular activity? Um, stepping back from that, I think at, within the school itself, I should have said no to many things earlier on. Um, so you do have to be diligent as a junior scholar about saying no to bigger tasks that come your way, because if they find out that you're good at managing or organizing, you will get asked many, many times to do this. And so uh, a year and a half after I received tenure, I was I started serving as department chair and we had the largest apartment uh, in the business school of about, I think 12 tenure track faculty and 35 to 45 adjunct faculty. So it was a fairly kind of administratively onerous job. Um, it just, it took up space, <laughs> you know, it took up a lot of space. And I would say that, so, for me, it was like, well, how can I make a difference with this rather than just griping about it? And um, and we were short tenure track faculty. We hadn't been given lines. We'd been skipped over. So my goal then became, how can we get more tenure track lines? And I kept on citing stats to the dean. <laughs> so finally committed more tenure track lines to us. And that was sort of like something that I wanted to accomplish in that, in that process and then streamlined our adjunct faculty so that we had a more robust uh, group of faculty teaching in the classroom. Um, when it comes to sort of the community and the academic space or sort of, you know, our associations and whatnot, I think it's important to sort of play a role, right? Rather, I see others that, now not everybody has the time and the bandwidth to play a role, but is there something that you're interested in getting involved with and um, in, in a space that's going to sort of maybe complement your skill base, right? Uh, versus just like, no, I'm not going to do anything. Um, so I, you know, when I was program chair, I, we had, I think, one of the highest amounts of, of submissions that year was in Anaheim. And um, um, I remember someone that was from a top tier institution saying, oh, I absolutely can't review because I'm teaching one course this year. And I was like, okay, right? Like, you know, that. <laughs> so I, I just thought, you know, that you can review. It's only three papers. They're academy papers. It's, it's feasible to do. So no, do you need to sign up for three divisions? No, <laughs> you don't need to do that. But, but you can do these little things. And I think one of the great things that I see with STR right now is that there's a lot of, of subcommittees and spaces for, for junior scholars to volunteer. And some more get engaged with the division, but not in a way that's going to that take up a huge amount of their time, right? So they can still do this. And then, you know, they're more visible. We get to see who you are. We learn a little bit more about you. Um, and so I think it's about identifying what, what, what is it that, what's, a, what's an area where you want to contribute? Um, and then, you know, is there a way for you to make a difference in doing that? But finding something that is going to 
you're going to make a contribution. Now, if you're not someone that's comfortable sitting on committees and doing that kind of work, um, then you know, the basics, volunteering to review, um, those kinds of things, volunteering to serve as a discussant or a session chair um, as at least a starting point for uh, for helping the division move forward. And the same goes for SMS, right? So, so there's opportunities there to, to get engaged. Um, uh, when I moved from SMU to Santa Clara, I knew I was at the smaller school. And so for me, I thought, well, I want to make sure that I stay connected and involved in both SMS and AOM in particular ways, because I, I didn't want to sort of just kind of get lost in the background of, you know, this, uh, of being at Santa Clara and not being sort of at one of the, the um, top tier institutions in, in the country. So, so I said, I purposely said, well, I'm going to try to sort of volunteer for things or, or, uh, or, or I guess agree to serve for things in the communities. And so around that time when I was department chair, you know, I, I think I'd served on the EC and then there was this opportunity to, I got asked to run and I'm like, well, I won't win. Sure, put me on the ballot for SDR. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and then surprisingly that, that happened. So I was somewhat shocked. Um, for the, the, I want to sort of say a few words about the board because it's been an amazing experience to serve on the board of governors of the academy. It's like participating in the best faculty meeting ever. Everybody is incredibly insightful and respectful of each other. The conversations are fruitful and useful. It's, it's, it's really just a great group of people to work with. Um, but when I started, it was at the tail end, Anita was just finishing her leadership role. And um, I'd say there was one male on the board, maybe two. And there were, everybody else was OB, all OB scholars, right? And so, um, and they're, you know, they're strong scholars, very thoughtful people, everybody's terrific, but no, maybe only two macro people, right? So this is the group that makes decisions about the future of the academy in, um, to the, who's the leaders of the journals um, and um, in the future directions for journals as well. So if I can make a pitch, nominate, nominate your scholars, nominate your advisors, nominate uh, senior people in your groups to serve on the board of governors, right, as a representative or in the leadership role. Um, and uh, uh, so I, I think that's really important. I think it's something that we have a lot of folks in the strategy field that could serve in this capacity and, and help to frame the future directions of the field. And so Samina so has, has done some things to help sort of initiate getting, you know, simple thing about, well, does, is AMJ really attending to strategy papers or is it more just, you know, largely OB papers? Um, can we look at that a little closer? Can we understand? So, so that, po that question was posed to the board. And, and I think as many of you know that they've taken that on and sort of the, the editors have taken some actions to ensure that we have better representation, that there's actually even some keywords that, um, that we need to be added so that we are part of that Congress, part of that journal, a more or have a, principally, and uh, we don't feel like we're fenced out. I'd say from that journal, right? Um, so, so that that those are some things that sort of, if you have ideas like that, if there's there's questions you have about the field, if there's problems that you see in the journals, this is also a space where you can reach out and and try to reach out to a board of governors representative and, and see if there's something that can be done. So um, I really appreciate Samina sort of reaching out about that topic because action was taken. And so, so nominate your colleagues when that election nomination comes out, usually in the fall, please send out names. It doesn't take very long. I think you have to write a paragraph about them, but, but, uh, but do nominate them because we could, we could benefit from the leadership Seem and Tim, you know, uh, Samina on the board, Michael yourself as well. 
Yeah, your, your comment reminds me, and I, I like, I mean, I'll, I'll end with the uh, A1 board, but I mean, there is a challenge at colleges about defending the field and, you know, in the division, defining the field and at the board of governors, you know, having a voice for the field. And I, I appreciate that statement. I remember um, I was once shamed by, you know, a pretty famous person, you know, but saying, hey, I wouldn't have a career if, you know, if it wasn't for that purple journal. So, you know, what are you doing to help? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I take that as the spirit of your, of your comments. So I, I, saying, I, I encourage everybody in the chat, bring yeah. more questions for Tammy. Um, there's only so much I have to say, and it's probably not what you want to hear. So write your question. Yeah, I had one other comment for, for junior faculty regarding service. And, and so, especially if you're you know, just starting out somewhere and someone comes to your office and say, will you be on a curriculum revision committee? And I would say, it's your first year, no is the answer. But more generally, if, if someone asked you to, to do something, go to your department chair or go to your sort of mentor and ask them, should I do this or not? What are your thoughts about this role? Should I take it on or should I not? And, um, and, and you know, ask, find that person that will give you that frank feedback. Um, because early on, you know, a, a few types of service commitments for your own institution are reasonable, but sort of taking on some large amount of committee work, et cetera, really early on is, is not good. Um, it, it sort of compromises you and you won't get through the hurdles that you need to get through to, to stay where you're at. Um, there are times where I've decided to do something because there was a problem at the school. So we had a crisis a few years ago. Um, there was a, we were concerned, several of us were concerned about culture changing. There was a, a loss of trust in the leadership of the institution. Um, and some faculty had complained to the provost substantially so that the associate dean was removed and a few of us stepped in as a dean's council to try to sort of improve things and kind of reset the clock. Um, that was a really, it was a, you know, it took up a lot of time, but it was really important for the school. And so I thought that kind of commitment um, was important. That kind of task was important to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a careful caution, right? It's, it's knowing what is important and central to you in your career. I, I, you know, that's, that's my editorializing and I'll stop. But I mean, being focused on how you're going to contribute, I think is probably yeah. a reasonable lesson. So, so, so what other, I mean, so we've talked a lot about research. We've talked about teaching. I think I saw, uh, you know, a little bit about service now. Are there other lessons you've learned in their career, uh, in your career? Um, you know, triumphs you've been willing or uh, to share? Uh, challenges, I think Samina had a comment up uh, earlier in the chat about, you know, anything would you be, you'd be, might be willing to share about a struggle you had publishing a particular paper you thought was, uh, you know, particularly insightful. So anything about those kinds of triumphs or challenges you might want to be willing to share with us? And um, well, so I want to say two things. One, I saw, I, I haven't seen all the comments here in the chat, but I saw Tamita's comment about the Pankaj Demowat, and I'd say that's spot on. It's a really good, good example. Um, uh, you know, there's papers where it's taken five years to get through, right? And um, frustrations. I think in general, the, the journals have gotten much, much better about turning things around. Um, and um, <clears throat> part of my frustration as a reviewer sometimes is that I'm seeing papers where the scholar has read maybe the recent 10 years of work and ignored the prior work, right? And this seems to be occurring much more frequently um, and it is a concern going forward that we're not reading deeply about the field. And, um, and so, so that's a concern. So if you're, you're referencing someone from 2020 for vicarious learning, 
No, they didn't create that concept. Now, I'm not suggesting, you know, if you're doing work on evolution, you have to go all the way back to Darwin, but really you, you should sort of, you know, learn kind of read deeply um, in a space and try not to cherry pick the literature. Um, yeah, so I mean, that's one, one issue. Uh, so some papers, I think I've just, you know, tried to, I really feel like I was beating, beating, beating the, in a battle with the reviewers constantly. I think we've all experienced that. Um, but there's, there's not, I mean, one paper stands out because it was a five year and I, the editor sat on it for 20 months <laughs> in two different <laughs> periods. Um, so that kind of stands out. But other than that, I, you know, other work, I, I think the example I gave of the published as is versus the other, the counterpart was, uh, was an early uh, wake up call in terms of this process. Um, but I think it's getting, it's getting tougher. Right. Um, and uh, I'm worried about a lot of, without reading deeply, I'm worried about the intellectual capacity of the field going forward? Or are we going to just have folks that are only reading strategy, strategy literature? And so that's, that's it. That's the only thing that's framing what they're doing. They're not reading sort of beyond that. Um, but even if you're doing that and you're not going past the last 10 years, then that's sort of problematic. So, so while doctor programs have particular structures, I think the expectation, at least it was at UCLA, is that you're reading beyond those, those structures that are in place, that you're, that you're not just sort of Kind of, and you're doing that systematically. So if you need guidance, then, then work with your advisors to, to get that guidance or work with a different faculty to get that guidance. But, but I think that's, you need to sort of read deeply. Um, let me, I, I, I don't think I've sort of talked about comments for doctoral students, but I, I'd say another one would be, think carefully about your committee. Um, my committee was fantastic, but at the time when I formed them, I didn't realize that two of them weren't speaking to one another. So that made for a really interesting defense. <laughs> Um, uh, so, so, so that's the thing. And the other part I talked about before is going big. So the wall versus the, the mortar type of idea, or, you, you know, I think Anita talks about it as a painting. So she has a sort of a better, uh, analogy from that standpoint. Uh, there's also this notion of people talking about balance. I think this is a myth. <laughs> I, I don't, um, I don't, especially for my colleagues that have young children and are, are struggling with that, especially during the pandemic, I think the balance notion is really difficult to put your hands around. Um, I would say try to protect your research time. If you have that opportunity, uh, most of your most productive hours, block those out and just be rigorously disciplined. Because with the six course load, we have to be disciplined at Santa Clara. So it's a matter of when I started out in the first, especially the first six years, it was sort of I'm teaching Tuesday, Thursdays. I'm trying to get all my teaching work done on Tuesday, Thursdays. Sometimes it spills over to one other day, but then the other days were only on research, right? So I would teach three classes back to back and then try to shift and focus only on research on those other days. So, so trying to think about what are your most productive hours and how can you block those out and really manage around those uh, is really important. Uh, so. But I'm, I, I know there's a bunch of questions here. I'm happy to answer. Yeah, we have a bunch of questions and I have a private request. So we're going to go to some questions. I think I, I see several on the book um, and one on collaborators. We, you're forced into collaborating sometimes, I'm sure. So we'll just leave that as that. But um, Zhao would like to take a picture of everyone uh, for posterity. And, and Rich McAdock is putting on his best face. I think he <laughs> wants to be front and center. He wants, you know, so maybe it's just a picture of Rich. But um, Jao, uh, let, me, let me leave it to you to take a picture. Yeah, thanks, Michael, and thanks, Tammy. This is fantastic. Uh, and now channeling Samina, everyone, if you address <laughs> from waist up, 
<laughs> Please turn on your camera and we'll just take a screenshot. Okay, so one, two, three, say cheese. We got it. Thank you. Back to you, Michael. Thank you. Okay, well, I mean, double edit that. I want it. Rich has the best background. I wish that that's his office at home. Uh, he's got a big fireplace and, you know, that's that's where I wish I was right now. But And it's snowing in June. And it's snowing in June. So I don't, well, I don't know where you're at. So, you know, uh, so let's, let's get back to the questions and some, and some, some questions from the chat. I saw two, uh, one from uh, uh, Julia Chang and one from Asim about your forthcoming book with, um, 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 with, uh, on co-innovation platforms, because I don't want to mispronounce your co-author's name. So, um, so Asim and Julia, Give, me, give us a little color and maybe Tammy can respond to your question. Um, I mean, well, I, I'm kind of, Tammy and I have actually had the opportunity to talk about this book, but I, I really think it's fascinating. So I'd love for other people to hear about it. But, but I think the broader point was also, I mean, you know, I think we do, uh, I think at various points in, in time, one thinks about, there's always this discussion about writing a book versus writing papers and, and how does one think about that? So I think it will be interesting to hear. Uh, and of course, I mean, this is not your first book. You, you know, have a very, very successful book with, with Gordon Walker. So I'm, I'm sort of curious about the, that sort of decision process and how do you think about books versus papers? Right, thank you so much, Sassim. Um, we, <clears throat> so this book is, a, this is it's evolved from about 10 years of conversations and, and work with a colleague that was, I was his thesis advisor. We have an MSIS program and um, he was an executive at SAP uh, leading a co-innovation platform. And we were at the time we were trying to start out, well, was it a platform? Was it a lab? What exactly is it? And so his dissertation itself or his thesis focused on that topic. And, and I was asked to, to serve as an advisor because it involves partnerships and alliances and, and those kinds of things. Um, <clears throat> so we started out trying to carve out well, what really is this? And it, it's not like, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. It's not like an Android platform. It's not like the iOS platform. That's a little bit different. It's not entirely, entirely like uh, an innovation ecosystem in the way that Adner speaks about it. Um, and so we were trying to knit together exactly what the phenomenon was. And um, over time, we decided that you know, we have a lot of use cases. We have a lot of rich stories. And so it didn't quite fit um, a, a traditional kind of article that would fit a journal. And we have a, a working paper that we've sent around a couple times and it was sort of just, it was one qualitative and for me, you know, my other work's really sort of longitudinal empirical. So the qualitative piece was not something that was my specialty. Um, and so it just wasn't, it wasn't doing well in, in terms of its getting rece well received <clears throat> in the review process. And so we thought, well, let's step back and we're having to cut a bunch out to have to tell this story. So let's step back and think about doing a book. Um, and um, <clears throat> we began that process a couple of years ago. Uh, and then we're trying to decide, well, you know, because it was a book, it was kind of lower on my list of priorities, right? So I was more interested in articles, doing articles than sort of the book. And, um, and we could have gone with, you can either do, you know, create a proposal for the book, send it to an agent, the agent, you know, or write the book and send it to an agent with a proposal and have them sort of market it for you. Or we had an opportunity to do something with Palgrave. And so I said, okay, let's just get it done. And, um, and so the book will be coming out hopefully the end of this year. I'm still finishing up some final chapters. The focus is on, um, as, as, as Michael said, co-innovation platforms. And the model itself is one where the platform owner 
it's a resource open platform, but with curated access. And so the platform owner here is focused on enabling co-innovation uh, across multiple technologies, across multiple industries. And they do that by enabling, by providing services, both on the supply side to support that, to, to give resources and capabilities to get the co-innovation work actually done among complementary partners. And then on the demand side, so resources and capabilities that will help those partnerships showcase their results and build awareness. That includes demo development, publications, events, all kinds of things. And so the contrast to, let's say an iOS platform, which is also an innovation platform, is that there's one, a formal partnership that occurs, but two, we're sharing, the platform sharing resources and capabilities with the partners, the complementary partners. They're not just providing digital support for that innovation effort. And so we, we, we think about it more as much more as a hands-on model, right? Where not everybody has access to the platform. We're not opening it up like sort of an Android where anyone can write an app, but it is, there's a select set of partnerships that the platform will take on uh, based on executive, part, executive sponsorship. And then they'll focus those, they'll enable those, those projects to occur and bring them to fruition, right? So these might be <clears throat> small ideas that occur at, let's say, Intel, and they're coming to the, the, um, the co-innovation platform to seek a partner. The platform will help them find a partner for that particular topic, and it might be a solution, a conversation starter back at Intel, that solution. Michael had mentioned these sort of the cases, the use cases that we have are very different. So we're talking about connecting very distant knowledge pieces. And so one example is a dairy cooperative in the Black Forest who was interested in <clears throat> and enhancing food transparency for the consumer, right? So telling the story of milk, telling milk's journey from the farm all the way to the store shelf. So how could they do that? Um, SAP connected them with a digital consultancy and then combination of employing, employing smart technology, the, the dairy cooperative now has QR codes on their milk cartons or milk bottles. And you can scan one of those in the market and it'll tell you what farm your milk came from, how long it took it to get to the uh, its entire journey from that location all the way to uh, the store shelf. So <clears throat> the platform itself is there's started out was one in, in the model original model was at SAP. They now have they have 15 across the world, and so we're we're drawing use cases from a variety of these spaces. But the whole focus is on enabling co innovation um, and, and doing it slightly differently than maybe some of the other platform models. So our struggle was really, well, this isn't quite like an iOS platform. It's not quite like a transaction platform. Um, yes, it involves an innovation ecosystem, but it's slightly different than the way that Ron talks about it. Um, so it, was, it took some time to kind of knit these pieces together. And um, so it resonates a lot with Annabelle Gower's work and Michael Cusimano's work. We really benefit from their knowledge. And of course, as you know, there's been this wealth of research that's been, um, that's been spawned the last 10 years. I see Juice on the call, so we're, we're certainly looking at some of his work as well. Um, and, and that sort of, hopefully, it'll be of interest to, to the readership. It'll be out this year, so. Oh, awesome, let me get you, let you get a glass of water or clear your throat. We yeah, do have a couple you. of questions coming in in the chat. Uh, one from Abi that I'll go to him with uh, very quickly. And then another uh, more about uh, from, uh, from it's it's Jingning, I believe. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your name and we'll just, I'll, I'll turn to you and then uh, we'll see where we're at and maybe wrap look at wrapping things up. So uh, Abi, do you have a, you have a question? Sure. Uh, I was wondering since you are strategically selective about projects and topics, uh, 
in addition to that, how do you go about choosing collaborators and co-authors? Very carefully. <clears throat> I would say, I think it's, I think it's, I think you should, it's important to, to think carefully about how does that other person work? You know, we teach these ideas in, in alliances, like, are they compatible, right? Is there a convergence of purpose? Are there complementary capabilities? So those, those kinds of things sort of resonate here. I, I remember when I was a doctoral student, one of my advisors was constantly complaining about um, their co-author. I thought, what? why are you co-authoring with them then? What, if you're just always saying all these negative things about this person, what, what, why, right? And so I think it makes sense to have some conversations about how you'll get work done before you actually make that commitment. Sometimes you don't have a choice. You're sort of working with your advisor and, and you know, but you've already built that relationship. But I, I think that it, it's important to think about how do you work together? How will you work together? If you have that first phone call and there's a lot of friction, <laughs> think about when you're in round two of the, of the, you know, of the review process and you're battling with the reviewers, but now you don't want someone to be battling with each other. So I think carefully about, you know, are there complementary capabilities? You know, so for me, for instance, I'm really good at starting projects. Uh, I need to make sure that I have a, a complementary capability in closing projects. I'm getting better at that, but certainly having someone else that is, is more effective at that matters. But I think the working relationship itself, can you work with this person? Can you, you know, sit down and have a cup of coffee and enjoy the conversation, enjoy the time together? That makes a difference. And so I'd say be very mindful of that early on. Um, and then certainly, you know, work with other, work with different people. Right. So it's fun to sort of collaborate um, and, and work with others. It helps. I, I find it helps me in, in thinking about a problem and moving it forward. But I, 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 I tend to sort of try to be very careful. I work with this guy, Michael. He was, you know, he was okay. Yeah, I, I, back at you, dear. But uh, I, I will say this. I, I, I was talking to a friend of mine, Abby, and I, I found this helpful. And uh, we were chatting about like-minded and like-hearted people. And um, you know, in some sense, like uh, in, for my work with Tammy, we come at some of our problems. So we both care. I think uh, we both have a good sense of disciplinary importance, field importance, and methodological importance. But we don't perfectly overlap on that. I think that's a fair statement. But I, I trust, and there's a sort of like-hearted, we're going to do things the right way. We're going to do things systematically. Uh, we're going to do things, you know, so what we're going to trust, what, we're, what we do is correct. And I think that's sort of interesting. So my, the, the friend of mine with the like-minded, like-hearted point was saying, you don't want like-minded people necessarily, but you want to have very good dialogue and constructive dialogue. And that helps, and it helps to have like-hearted people um, in, in thinking about generating good, you know, good constructive discussion and, argue, and argument to take a, a, a popular new book, right? Good strategic arguments. So um, I, I found that no, helpful. You don't want co-listers. You want co-authors, <laughs> right? So. so as a Jingning, I think you, you had a question I saw and, and AS, I, I, I had another question. Uh, we, we've got a compliment on your book. Just as it sounds like he's gonna, he's gonna be one of the first, uh, 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 those of us to buy it. Um, but let me go to Jingning first and uh, get as many questions in as we can in the remaining time. A great pronunciation, Michael, by the way. Uh, and thank you, Tammy, for the great advice for PhD students. I just read them down. So just one thing I, it really bothers me about how to plan your publication strategically before you enter in the job market. Uh, so I hear professors in my department, the University of Pittsburgh, they always say, okay, aim for SMJ, aim for AMJ. But I will also hear 
a suggestion from other professors saying, okay, just get your publication out. Uh, so at least you have some publicated, a published article on your resume just to catch their attention. So, get you into the interview process. Um, so except dissertation, I do have a few side projects. In, in order to make them into top journal articles, they're gonna take a lot of effort and, mm -hmm. and time. So just like how to deal with this trade-off and how you see that general uh, process would be. <clears throat> yeah, well, my priority would be the top two journals. Right, that would be, and I'd love to hear what Samina and Asim and Michael and, and Tim um, and Rich, which was with how they would respond. But I would say targeting your core papers from the dissertation and get those into the top tier journals. Um, those are the papers that will play a role in you achieving tenure at your first institution, right? Because they're, they're going to weight the eight, the top tier journals more so than the work in the background. Um, I, you know, when I went on the market, I did have a, a, a a paper with someone in Mark with George Zip in marketing was sort of an, an odd paper. Um, but at that time, I think that the, the timing here was the time things were different. We, it wasn't their expectation wasn't there wasn't an expectation that everybody had sort of two or three, you know, several publications going out. So I would say that make that priority. That should be your focus, especially during the dissertation years and uh, as your as your doctoral student. And then and then once those get carved out, your energy's been focused on those. If you have an opportunity to work on these other side projects, then you can go in that direction. Um, some folks work incredibly long hours and do both, but I think focusing on the core dissertation work and trying to get that into the top tier, focusing that part of your energy that direction will, will help you a great deal. What are your thoughts, uh, Samina or Kareem or? Um, I'm Asim, I'm sorry, Asim or, or Samina. Samina, Tim, Tim. Uh, Rich, if you Rich. want, Asim, we'll just go in order. I completely agree. And the, the main reason I was thinking also is your dissertation is like your first stamp at trying to identify your research identity. So you, you want to aim high for that because, you know, that, that's going to stay, that's starting to define you in some sense as your contribution. Yeah. So I, I'd agree with Tammy. Tim? Yeah, I'm with Tammy too. Okay, Rich. 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 Sorry. I'm, I'm, with, I'm with Tammy too. It's better to have, you know, a revise and resubmit at a top tier <laughs> journal than a publication at a, you know, a, 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 a not, not a top tier journal. Tim? You're muted, Tim. I mean, that's, nobody has ever heard that during the last 15 months, right? I've stepped away. If and if Rich paraphrased the, the question correctly, I, I agree with him. Rich did it incorrectly. But no, no. <laughs> Rich, Rich, Rich agreed. Rich was correct. Tim is correct. Asim, do you have anything to offer on this? No? I, I, you, what I will, I will jump in with just say is obviously, um, so I think everybody wants quality. And I'm sorry, can I just elaborate on it? I remember, no. Michael, remember when we were in the PhD program, Dan Schendel, was teaching a course that we took together. And I remember him saying, um, you know, why send it to a lower tier journal? Because it's gonna, you, you may, you, there's gonna be more variance in the quality of the reviews, right? And that could end up pushing the paper in a direction you don't wanna go. Or, uh, and, and the process isn't any shorter at a, at a, at a journal at a lower tier journal. So, you know, you might get good feedback if you send it to a good place, so. Yeah, so Dan Shindell was Tim's advisor and I tell you, 
uh, I have stories, but uh, he uh, he taught me a lot. I, I think about his uh, statements uh, increasingly with age. Um, and and, and Asim has a nice point uh, in the chat about a you know a lower tier journal could you know it's it's all about signaling at that stage, and a lower tier journal could actually send uh, a suboptimal signal. What, what I would say would, would try to add to this is I, I, it is remarkable to me, even in my own, in own institution, how definitions of top tier or lower tier journals have changed over time. So things are a little idiosyncratic to groups is my point. Um, and be aware of you know, how the group is defining you know, what top tier is. Uh, so when you have very strong scholars, it can be we're gonna read the flipping paper, which is I think what we should all be doing and understand whether it you know, makes a contribution or not to the field, obviously you'd expect the best work in the best top tier journals. Uh, when there's weaker scholars, you might be counting. You might be engaging in politics about what journals count or do not count. And you know, uh, coming in with, you know, mine's on the FT50 list or yours is on some other list or impact factors is probably not, you know, um, that's not gonna work. So there's a, there's a group consensus discussion there. So that's, so I mean, I think it's a good point too, is if you're on the job market, then the places that you're talking to, asking them about their, you know, tenure standards from the research standpoint and, and uh, many schools have informal journalists and they would include the top, your, what you perceive to be the top tier at, at, at you know, in our space, um, but somehow formal journalists and, you know, can be, that can create some rigidity in terms of what's accepted or not accepted in terms, what will count or not count for that for that hurdle. Also, I think it's helpful to ask about the midterm, mid-tier mid review. So most schools oftentimes will have, you know, review your, if it's a six-year clock, you have a review your third year. Um, what are the expectations for that? What should you be achieving by that third year? <clears throat> Do I need to have a publication? What, what, where should my teaching ratings be? What, what should I have accomplished at that point? What are your expectations around that? Um, this is not always something we think about going into uh, an interview, but those are really critical topics to, to talk about. So when you learn about that third year review and what the expectations are, it sort of tells you right away, okay, I need to hit the ground running and I need to make sure that I'm sort of doing certain things by year one versus just sort of sitting on your papers and saying, well, I'll get this, I'll get this a little bit tweaked more, I'll get it tweaked a little bit more. I mean, one of the things with Bill McKelvey, and many of us have mentioned it over the years, we have this Bill McKelvey effect, which is holding on to something too long. And, um, and that still kind of sticks, <laughs> stuck with me today. It's, it's a very strong imprint. Um, and so it's a matter of, you know, figuring out when to, when to let something go and when to, to, to keep it. I'm still waiting to publish my dissertation, which won, won a bunch of awards, but that's a different story. I want to go to AS while we have time. I think I, I'll just say for everybody, I mean, I think most of the folks, when we come into the academy, uh, the, the academy officers, the STR division, and I assume this cult for a bunch of senior faculty are willing to have engage in these kinds of conversations. So there'll be opportunities for this to, to you know, so you might reach out to that uh, at another time. But AS had a final question, had a question, and I think we've got time for it to squeeze it in with, uh, and then we'll close with Samina with, with Samina's favorite question. But um, AS, what do you yes. think? Yes, hi, uh, Tommy, thank you so much for this very interesting presentation. And I really am very thankful to everyone who contributed to this discussion. It's really enriching and, and, and nice to hear um, different points of view. 
My question is, I'm, I'm a PhD candidate. I'm, I'm going to start applying for jobs. Uh, my reason to join academia, to come back to academia after many years of the industry are exactly like yours, like verbatim. Just the same feeling I had when I was working in organizations and the frustration was the same. So my thinking is what should I look or a new uh, like candidate in the market look for in a university when he or she applies or thinking of applying? Thank you. Sure, I mean, I, I think part of it is, well, stepping back, there's multiple characteristics that what types of schools do you wanna be in? Do you wanna be in a large, do you want a large public institution, small private school? Do you want a tier one R1 school where they have doctoral students? <clears throat> or are you okay at a place that doesn't have doctoral students, right? Um, are you, do you want a place that values teaching more? I'd say most of our institutions now are increasing the amount that they value in terms of teaching capabilities, but some still sort of have more of a balance of teaching and research, or is that the kind of place where you wanna be? Uh, so, so part of it is figuring out those kind of dimensions. And then, and then separate from that is a quality of life issue, right? Which I think is, is really important. Right, because you'll be spending a lot of time at this location. So, so what, what, how, how, what priority does that have in your choices, in your choice list? And, um, and, and, you know, do you have a family that also plays into that? Sort of what's going to work for them? What's where? Where are they going to be happy? Because that's also going to influence you. So, I think very, very carefully about multiple dimensions that will. So, not just about well, I'm going to go to the, I'm going to apply to all the schools out there and you know see what hits kind of thing, but stepping back and saying what's really going to be best for me. And I will say that you know when I went to the market, there was one place where one state that I I did not apply to any schools intentionally. <laughs> there, I ended up with interviews at three schools at that state and three offers at that state. So things can be serendipitous too on the market. And so you, you sort of never know. I would say it's a really small world. So be very polite, be respectful. Um, it Word gets around very quickly. But I would say, think about what's gonna work best for you. Small, do you wanna be, you know, small private school, big public institution, something in between. What region of the world's gonna be best for you in terms of and for your lifestyle, for your family, et cetera. And then the teaching research balance piece, um, I think is, is another element to consider, right? So, so we've had folks come to us and say, oh, you know, I wanna make sure because your Santa Clara values teaching, we also value research, but they wanna sort of be able to contribute in that way. Alternatively, we have folks that come to us and say, look, you're in the Valley, I'm studying entrepreneurship. This is an ideal space for me um, in terms of the types of the research rich environment that, uh, for for opportunities for, for for conducting studies and so so part of so those kinds of dimensions I think are really important. Yeah, well, I think we've 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 just about uh, worn out your voice. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's what that sounds like as we're uh, ringing up time. I do see a nice note from Tim Folta. Uh, I encourage you to read. Uh, you know, a lot in noting where well-cited papers are and what that means about the selection process in journals. Jeff Martin has a nice little comment about thinking about for PhD students, junior scholars on the call, being very clear about the process, including timing and whatnot. Um, you know, lots of all other thanks and whatnot from the group, and, and hopefully this was useful for someone. Uh, it was fun for me. But, uh, and, and in the interest of time, Samina, I apologize, but I'm gonna ask the question, and this will be the final thing for you, Tammy, today. You've earned your keep. Uh, we all owe you uh, an ice cream or something uh, when we next see you. Uh, but um, 
who is your favorite, you know, what's your favorite book or genre of, uh, of, of, of uh, text outside of, you know, I assume it's not widely published. <laughs> no. So, I, I mean, I read fiction in different areas, a lot of historical fiction, but, um, but I oftentimes take an author and just read sort of all the things that they've written. So Philip Roth's work, I, I really like, but Richard Rousseau's uh, book, Straight Man, is um is is sort of funny it's a there's a faculty member involved in that story so that resonated with me as well when i got accepted to the program i was reading the jungle by upton sinclair at, i think it's upton sinclair um and i that is the book is sort of you know very colorful stories but it it sticks with me for some reason i remember being on the phone with with bill ochi and and at the time talking about that so um so those are sort of some some examples. I'm also, you know, of course, on the other side, I'm on my list of reading. I'm reading Chatter, and then I have my list of. I'm also about to read Noise. Uh, ah, Noise, I like that. Okay. Well, I have my favorites, but for those of you looking on the market to go on the market, I recommend an old book called Moo. I read it. Oh yeah, Moo's good. Smiley, Jane Smiley. Yeah, Jane Smiley. I oh, think uh, it's about yeah. Iowa, isn't it? About Iowa. Yeah. Big Ten ish, you know, but. Uh, what it's like to be a professor. So, oh, well, <laughs> on that note, maybe maybe not on that note, but uh, <laughs> thank you all. Uh, I think we're out of time. I think we're out of voice. Uh, and uh, I hope to see many of you as we come around uh, and get to meet in person uh, in the coming years. Take care. Thank you, Michael. And thank you for everyone for attending. Thank I really you. appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank thank you. I got my reaction out there.